Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. This week's guest is Jean Guillard. She is an independent scholar who has been researching and writing about the French in New England for over 25 years. She has worked as a teacher, manager, financial analyst, and business owner. She is a published author, having contributed to various books and anthologies, and she wrote her own book, I Remember, Je Me Souviens, which details the French in the Americas. Jean, welcome very much to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you very much, Jesse, and thanks for inviting me to take part in this wonderful project. So before we get going too far into what I hope will be the meat of this conversation, just kind of like where we are now, kind of how we got there, I know when you give your talk, and we'll talk about that because everybody should go check out your presentation, um, you do like to give kind of like a little background about the history of the Canadien Acadien. So maybe you can give us a little bit of that. So as I was doing my research over these 25, 30 years, I found a fascinating story of two groups of French speakers from similar regions in France who came to the Americas in the 17th century. And come to find out, their experiences here in the Americas shaped them as almost like two different people. Mainly the reason was because the um, French government and the Catholic Church operated out of Canada, and the people living in Acadie had very different experiences from the Canadien. So one of the things we definitely like to talk about with all our guests is kind of, you know, what their story is, where they grew up, and how they really came to dedicate so much of their life to telling this super interesting uh, Franco-American story. So if you could just give us a little bit of your background. Sure. This is that's a very interesting story. Um, I grew up in Western Massachusetts. I uh, lived. I was the oldest child, and I lived with my grandmother and my um, bilingual mother and my dad. Uh, French was the only language spoken in the house when I was growing up, so I didn't learn English until I left for school at the age of five years old. Over the years, I came to think about my experiences as a Franco-American in New England. I um, felt a great deal of shame about our culture, and I also came to realize that the French I had learned as a child was not considered real French and was ridiculed, really, by people around me. This experience and others led me to um, move from New England in the 1970s, in the late 70s, uh, when I moved to Colorado for four years. The reason I'm bringing this up is that it is in Colorado where I began to be passionate about this story. I had a couple of experiences. The first was that I noted the way the Mexicans were treated by um, the Americans in Colorado, and it felt very familiar to me. Wow. Uh, they were treated with disdain and ridicule, and I thought, this is how I have felt growing up in New England. And the second experience was when I mentioned to a couple of people that I spoke French, they were in awe and they thought that was great. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I guess this, uh, there's a different way of looking at this. Sure. Now, a lot of this was going on unconsciously in my head. But what I realized in looking back now on these 
last few years is that this set the stage for me to start asking questions of myself. Like, why is it that this perception, why is it this perception that we have? Am I the only one that feels this way? Sure. The first thing I did was I did my genealogy when I came back to New England, and I found that I had incredible, an incredible story. I have roots in France, in Quebec, in Acadie, as old Acadie especially, sure. in the Algonquin Nation, and in England. So I, I found this to be very fascinating. Sure. I had no idea when I was growing up. No one knew the stories. Then um, I began reading. Mainly it was reading and research, very complicated because different perspectives were out there in the past as to um, whether or not it was written by French speakers or Americans or English, and the stories were contradictory, and I didn't know the truth, and I wanted to know the truth. With all of this reading and other things that happened to me, I began writing with no particular intention of doing anything with it, mainly writing for myself so that I could understand my own story. And um, there were certain events that happened where... Um, I was asked to contribute to a book that was published in Springfield, Massachusetts, and as a result, I thought, they're only taking pieces of my story. Why don't I publish something? And so that's where the book came from. And after I had that done, I began thinking that this was such an interesting story. It was not known. I didn't know it, and I figured that most people, uh, most Francos didn't know it, and other people of different cultures didn't know this story. And it's it, something I should do more with. So I began giving presentations throughout New England, and I even um, gave this talk in Sherbrooke, Quebec, last year. So I'm very excited about this and wanting very much to um, spread the story, tell, tell the truth about our story. I had a lot of help. I had professional help in uh, crafting this because my intent was to make it as current and the history as accurate as I could. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I love that. And one of the things that you discuss in your work, that one of the questions you tackle is something super interesting to me because it's one of the main main things that we've talked about right from the very beginning of this podcast was that whole idea of the loss of language. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my get my parents, similar to you, grew up speaking French in the house, uh, both of them, uh, but they never taught me or my sis, which is a story super, super common, um, at least in Manchester. And I was very curious, because I know you tackle this head on, as to why this might have been. Right. And uh, so let's talk about two things. First, it's not a unique situation to the Acadiens and the Quebecois um, who came down south to New England. Um, many immigrants came to the United States, for many of them, The possibility of reinventing oneself, of leaving everything behind and moving into a future that has no past has been compelling. Leaving everything behind also meant leaving their language behind. But there's another aspect to the Franco-American language story that is rather unique. And that is that harsh judgments were made on the way these people spoke French. They were ridiculed for not speaking real French. And I personally knew that. I experienced that in my growing up years. And I didn't know why this was. So in my research, I found out that in truth, our ancestors actually spoke with a very old pronunciation, which is that of the 17th century France. And it's this pronunciation they brought with them to New England. So in addition to the fact that a lot of Um, immigrants coming to the United States wanted to leave their language behind so that they could reinvent themselves here. 
Therefore, they did not teach their children and grandchildren the language. I think another big piece of this story for the Francos is that there was a lot of shame associated with the language that they were speaking and a lot of judgments made on them because of this. Yeah, and you reference you kind of grew up with some of that yourself. That's right. I grew up speaking only French until the age of five when I started school. Uh, I was the oldest child, and French was the language that I heard, so that's the only language I knew. Um, but I certainly knew at a fairly early age that this French I spoke was derided and ridiculed. I wanted to find out why. Sure. No, absolutely. And one of the things... Yep. Um, um, you mentioned growing up being ridiculed. Uh, you actually used the word shame. Which That's I think, right. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it was like. Where did the shame come from? What were you were feeling at the time? What your perspective? What that did to your perspective of being a Franco-American was? So um, that's a really important question because this has become my passion. I am very interested in the story of. Uh, the heart of our people. And I wanted to understand why I felt shame. I mean, let's start, first of all, let me state that I always felt that I was the only one that had these feelings about my culture. And, um, oh, I don't remember. I'd say in the 1980s, I met someone and we started talking about this. She had the same background as I did. And I was astonished to find out that I wasn't the only one. And I have to say that through my years of reading and research, I have discovered that I was certainly not the only one. And that it's though everyone's experience is unique and we, when we make generalizations, that can be dangerous territory because not everyone certainly did not feel this way. Um, it's predominant enough that it's important to talk about and it's become my reason for the research. Why is it that there was so much shame in these people? Why were they perceived as weak? One of the next things that I was thinking we could talk about is um, a question that was asked um, when I started giving my talks. Sure. And I felt that it was such an important question that I have incorporated it into the presentation. The question is this. Sure. Was the Franco-American experience different than other immigrant experiences in New England. And I um, came up with three reasons why it was different. The first, that's very important and that I talk about a lot in my presentation and in my book as well, is that when the Acadien and the Canadien came down from the north into New England, they were a well-known entity here because we, there are hundreds of years of history sure. between the English and the French in the Americas. And that cannot be um, denied. And what happens is that history lives long in the lives of people. And there were perceptions on both sides between the French and the English in the Americas that came down through the generations on both in both cultures. And the French were not beloved entity. Right. when they came to Anglo-Saxon Protestant New England. The second issue um, that was that is actually familiar today as well is that these people were coming across a border and they could go back and forth from their homeland. This wasn't possible for the people coming in from Europe. 
But for the Canadiens, the Acadiens, it was an easy thing, and they did cross the borders often. And so they were seen as, well, these people are not really serious about settling here. And they weren't taken seriously. And the third thing that I, I feel is extremely important is that our people were not urged to assimilate by their elites when they came to New England, to this part of the United States. Sure. And this, this is the story about, it's called in French, it's called La Survivance, Survival. Yes. And what was happening is at the time of immigration, the elites were struggling mightily against the English in Canada who were pushing for assimilation in culture and language. The elite were determined to retain their unique culture and language. So when their people began coming south, leaving uh, Quebec and Acadie, and they were coming to another English-speaking Protestant country, the elite were fighting hard to retain this culture and language here in New England. And it caused a lot of strife, and it caused a lot of difficulties. One thing I so, think is pretty interesting, uh, we've talked about la survivance. Uh, obviously, the border issue, I think, is you're spot on there. One thing I think is kind of cool, uh, unique to this conversation, for us anyway, is the whole idea of the reaction to the French Canadians might have, or in the Acadians, may have been different than the reaction to some of the other immigrant groups that came in. Uh, the whole idea that uh, they had already had an impression. They, the Yankee Protestants here, already think they, they, they knew what a French Canadian was. They had grown up hearing stories of what French Canadians were about. Uh, and so they already had like a, a perception before they even arrived in, in the country. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, that's right. They were the enemy for hundreds of years. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, it's, yeah, very interesting. I, I, I was so grateful to this person for asking the question because it's something I had never really thought about. All right. So you mentioned earlier a number of quotes that had a pretty big impact on you. Do you mind giving those to us? So, yeah. So okay. what I think what I'll do is I will um, note who says it. Okay. And then just quote it. Okay. They're not very. They're not all that long, but I, I think they're really important. So the first quote is from uh, Dr. Claire Quintal. Quote: Franco-Americans had defeatism in their blood. They set limited goals. They settled for less and had to be content, since the best reward of all, paradise, could be attained if they had been faithful. End of quote. The second is also from um, Dr. Claire Cantai. As a result of being constantly subordinated to strong authority at home, within the church, and at work, where Franco-Americans rarely occupied positions of authority, anger and resentment were and are often intense. Franco-Americans felt helpless in the face of powerful outside forces. End of quote. The third quote comes from Dr. Eve Robbie in his book, the Franco-Americans in New England. Americans viewed their Franco-American compatriots as docile, passive, and defeatist creatures, totally lacking in ambition, end of quote. The next quote is from author and retired Columbia University professor David Plant. Why should I feel anything but failure? Why should I be a success in anything when, as a Canuck, it was foregone that I would not succeed. Expect nothing, I told myself. Expect nothing, end of quote. The next quote is from author and Pulitzer Prize winner um, Annie Prue 
in reflecting on hers and her sister's experience growing up as a Franco-American in New England. And what did it do to us growing up as outsiders, as part of no people except our mother's pale-eyed Yankee clan, who subtly gave us the sense that we were different and somehow tainted, end of quote. And the final quote is something that I have written. Um, This is uh, in sharing my own experience. Quote, I was shaped by experiences of a people whose self-perception was founded on weakness, not strength, burdened by a deep sense of inferiority and unspoken rage. I felt shame. There was so much I did not understand. There's almost like two perspectives. Because there's the perspective of how the French were viewed by others, and then the perspective of how that view on behalf of others really impacted how the French viewed themselves, which I think is pretty Yes, that's right. And so what I discovered is that there's a really long history here. Um, I can touch upon the um, my reflections very briefly. Sure. So briefly, the Acadiens and the Canadiens weren't descended from a weak people, but they had developed a sense of powerlessness in the face of powerful outside forces, forces of both church and state, that had exerted their dominion over them for centuries, telling them what to think and what to do. So over time, a sense of defeatism grew in them. They became fatalistic, pliable, and not prone to question authority. They set limited goals, if at all. This is not who they really were, but their true character became lost to them. One thing I definitely want to get into in this interview, this discussion, is the whole concept of the silent presence, which is something you've spoken about. And that's something that's obviously super important to us because uh, we, one of the major motivators for me even getting involved with the Franco-American Center in the very first place was me being frustrated by that silent presence. That's how I I voiced my displeasure to one of my coworkers once. He's like, you got to join up with these Franco-American Center guys. And that's how this entire ball got rolling for me personally. Uh, but you, How but you tackled this silent, yeah, you tackled this silent presence question, which I think is pretty fascinating. Well, um, as I was researching and, and um, talking to people, I began to be aware of how pervasive this was. I mean, almost a million people moved to this very small part of the United States over a period of about forty years, and they disappeared. You didn't know about them. And, and in fact, what I've read is that at one time, because I don't know what it is now, but at one time, the Francos were the largest cultural group in New England. And yet you didn't know it. Sure. So what I'm going to do is, in addressing this, because this is a part of my passion for discovering and exploring the heart of our people, I'm going to entitle this little portion of the podcast, The Toll of Silence and Passivity. And I want to start off with a, a quote from Dr. Yves Roby, uh, from I had some quotes from him before, right. and it's also in his book, The Franco-Americans of New England. So Dr. Roby starts by writing, Worse yet, they had interiorized the negative image that the Americans and even their own elite attributed to them. Writes Roland Girard in the newspaper Le Travailleur, and I quote, Indeed, Educated people keep telling us, the English has told us, we are dumb, and we believed it. 
we keep repeating it at home in the street. We've really gotten the idea. The Frankels will never set the world on fire, end of quote. So I started thinking a long time ago about why this silent presence of the Acadien and the Canadien in New England primarily. And really there's no simple answer here. However, I've been to France several times over the last few years. And I've come to understand that as a culture, the French are a naturally private people. So I believe that part of this silence may be attributable to our nature. But I do believe that there's more to this than a natural tendency toward reticence. Silence can also mirror the inability to articulate deeply held feelings. It's often associated with pain and shame. Sometimes it's the only way humans can deal with pain. Perhaps this is what happened to our people, that under duress, their souls stepped aside and their spirit went into hiding. We've talked about it before, you know, how our language and the loss of language may have been different, um, Mm -hmm. being for the French-Canadian story versus maybe some of the others, immigrant stories. Um, Mm -hmm. I wonder why were the silent presence, why why weren't the Irish a silent, silent presence? Or the Italians a silent presence, you know what I mean? Is that... That's right. Uh, personally, when I was growing up, there was a, a big Italian and Irish presence in um, Western Mass where I grew up. And I, that was probably the first thing that spurred me on to find out why they were so vocal and we were not. Right. But I do think that part of it has to do with their outward nature. The Italians and the Irish have a tendency to just, you know, say everything. It's all outside. And the French are very different people. My experience in France had really taught me that they are an extremely private people. You don't get to know them very well. They love to talk, but you don't really get to know them very well until you've really been there a long time or you've made strong connections with them, which we have in a couple of instances. So I really think that that's a very important part of it. But I also believe that our people carried with them a huge burden that goes back, all the way back to France in the 1600s. And it was something that they could not, for a long, long time, they could not break from. And it's the history of the fact that these are people who lived under extreme authority of church and state. And we're talking centuries here. And it had marked them. Now, I wasn't going to talk about this in the podcast, <laughs> but fine. I can mention sure. that things changed um, up in Quebec and in Acadie and even in Louisiana uh, in the 1960s and the 70s and 80s. I'm sure many of us remember hearing about the separatist movement sure. and um, the, they, they had language police. And I remember this whole idea being very ridiculed. But for me, these people were finally saying, we've had enough. And it's not going to stay the way it's been. And they took a stand. They took a stand with the language, and they took a stand um, for themselves. And personally, I feel things when I (laughs) go places. And I remember in the past going to Quebec and feeling such anger. And going recently, I don't know, which, you know, say five, ten years ago, and all of a sudden realizing that that did not exist anymore. Now, I'm perfectly aware that the whole separatist situation is not completely resolved, and it may never be. 
But there's something major that has changed. These people took back their lives. They, they stood, uh, they took a stand for themselves and said, we are who we are and we are proud of this. And Canada had to listen, and they did. One thing that I definitely want to touch upon, because again, major reason for this podcast, why I got involved uh, in the Franco-American Center to begin with. In fact, it's something I talk about on a daily basis uh, with Tim Bolio, in fact, uh, the guy who runs Putzinfest. Mm-hmm. Really smart dude, brilliant guy. We talk about all the time how we agree that there is, you know, kind of there is the silent presence. Uh, but what, what do we do about it now? Uh, we don't want to be a silent presence. We want to be a raucous presence, a loud presence. I think about this a great deal, and there are things we can do. I want to go back a little bit sure. to something I addressed briefly. It was a section about the United States immigrant experience, and I feel that this is very important. It's a segue into ask, answering this question. And I ask myself this all the time because I think it's extremely, extremely important. What happens when people walk away from their past? What's lost? And can the loss affect us personally? Can it have an impact on the generations to come? I believe that, yes, the past is important. I believe that history shapes people and shapes cultures, that history matters. We are the heirs of our ancestors' journeys, and their experiences matter. We carry them with us, even if we don't know their story. I'm passionate about this. You can probably tell us oh, yeah. speaking. Um, this is so important to me. Um, and it's such a compelling piece as to why I want to tell this story. So now we're coming to your question. What can we done here in New England to change from a silent presence? I've got some ideas. I like First it. thing um, I thought about was our music. Music played an incredibly important role in our ancestors' lives. And... This music exists to this day. There are some fabulous groups in Quebec and the Maritime Provinces and in Louisiana that can help us reconnect to this source of our culture. But in addition to the music, I believe we need to start learning the truth of our story, learning the truth about the experience of our people in France and in the Americas. For there is a story a history to explain why the negative feelings and the perceptions developed. In fact, we briefly touched upon some of this in this podcast. I suggest that once you learn the story, you share it with others, with your families. And if you encounter people who carry, still carry false perceptions of the Francos in New England, you attempt to kindly correct their misperceptions. Another thing that encourages me a great deal is that there are people out there working to change the storyline. People like Sandra Goodwin and you, Jesse Martineau, of this podcast, who are working to educate us, to help us find the truth. There's author David Vermette, who's recently written a book focusing on the Franco-American experience in the mills of New England. There's Lucie Leblanc-Constantin, who shares the story of the Acadiens. And I'm sure there are many more people, and I am so heartened by this. So I want to close by sharing with you what I'm doing. I've already mentioned that I've spent 25, 30 years researching and reading, and my goal was to attempt to get to the heart of our story, the heart of the people. 
And as I briefly mentioned, this work led to writing a book, something I had never really intended. And then for the last four years, I've been traveling throughout New England and, in fact, even in Quebec last year, telling our story. I also feel like I need help. (laughs) I'm hoping that people who hear this might um, have ideas as uh, or suggestions as sure. to how I can continue to tell this story throughout New England. I feel it's such an important story, and I, I have been speaking mostly to genealogical groups, but I really want to go beyond that boundary to what I call the regular people, my people. I can mention that my preferred language is English, but I have translated this uh, presentation uh, into French as well. No, that's awesome, and we super appreciate you coming on the podcast and obviously all your work. I think what you do is incredibly important to be telling the story, to tackle the questions that, that we try to touch touch upon that really we've sure. been working with for a while. You know, why are we silent? How did we lose the language? Where do we go from here? I think the things you talk about are super, super important. So the fact that you're doing that traveling, even into Quebec to tell the story is awesome. Now, if somebody wants to pick up your book, how can they do that? Great. My book is entitled I Remember Je Me Souviens. It's not available on the internet, but you can email me if you are interested in getting the book. Um, my email address is silentpresence1 at gmail.com. Uh, if you email me, I will send it off to you. My presentation is entitled Silent Presence, the French in New England. And again, use the email address that I just noted to let me know if you have any ideas, suggestions, or if you would like me to speak in your area. In addition to this podcast, I've recorded two podcasts with Maple Stars and Stripes. Uh, It's episodes 51 and 53. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Gene. Well, thank you very much, Jesse and Mike, for all the technical work you're doing. And thank you and continue doing this good work. And let's stay connected. Yeah, of course. Always. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.